0: Privilege now to spend some time opening up the Bible together, opening up God's Word. And I'd like to begin by asking you if you know uh, what these three men on the screen have in common. What do they have in common? And no, it's not questionable fashion sense. The answer is that they have all experienced what we might call a fall from grace. Lance Armstrong, of course won the Tour de France, the most difficult race in cycling, a record seven consecutive times. Until in 2012, it was revealed that he had been using performance-enhancing drugs. Jim Backer was one of the most popular televangelists in the 1980s, but then in 1987, he was engulfed in financial and sexual scandal and was sentenced to 45 years in prison of which he only served eight. King Charles I was England's first king to be convicted of treason in 1649. He tried to bring back the divine right of kings in a time when absolute power wasn't very popular and it led to a bloody civil war and King Charles actually being beheaded. All of these men experienced what we would call a fall from grace and it's easy to perhaps shake our heads at these guys, it's easy to think maybe how could they be so stupid, how could they be so dumb but the truth is every single one of us are a moment away from making a decision or or, uh, triggering a series of decisions that could have disastrous consequences in our families, in our lives, in our ministries, whatever it might be. In fact, the Bible says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now, of course, we are safe and secure in the hands of God. I'm not suggesting that when we sin, we fall in and out of God's love and God's favour. But I'm saying we need to keep a careful watch on our lives. We need to be careful lest we fall. Now, this morning we are continuing our journey through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel and the title for today's sermon is The Fall of Saul. You see, of course, if you were here last week, you'd know that Saul was the first king of Israel, the first king of God's people. And he was the king that the people asked for, a king like all the other nations. He was, if you remember, tall, dark, handsome and rich. He was everything that the people were looking for in a king. He was everything that we might expect to see in a king. And yet what we saw last week was that there were already some bad signs. He was externally impressive, but he was spiritually insensitive. He was supposed to rule under God and for God, but he was actually ruling under the people and for himself, which we'll see in more detail this week. And this leads to his downfall. Now, we're going to learn some really important lessons from the fall of Saul this morning. And we're going to just look at this story under its two key movements. In chapters 13 to 14, we'll see the disobedience of Saul. And then in chapter 15, we'll see the rejection of Saul, which is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Now, as the story picks up in chapter 13, we see that the Israelites and the Philistines, their neighbours, are at it again. And Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, a, a large amount of time has elapsed since we last met Saul, Jonathan, his son, has successfully attacked one of the Philistine outposts. And the Philistines respond by mustering together a huge army and coming out against the Israelites. And the Israelite soldiers are so scared, so intimidated, that some of them run away and hide in caves and hide among the rocks. And this is where we meet Saul in verses 7 to 8. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Verse 8, he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. So Samuel, the spokesperson for God at this time, he had told Saul earlier that he was going to come to him to offer a sacrifice and to bless the army. But Samuel is running late. And Saul's men are beginning to leave him and to run away. You can almost picture Saul looking at the horizon for Samuel, asking everybody, have you seen Samuel yet? It's almost as if this is a test for Saul. Will he trust God? Will he trust Samuel, God's spokesperson? Or will he take matters into his own hands? Verse 9, Saul offered up. The burnt offering. And wouldn't you know it, that just as he offers up this offering, Samuel arrives. And Samuel says to him, what have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. Now, you might think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, why is Saul rejected just for offering up this sacrifice? Does it really matter that much? Well, it matters for a couple of key reasons. The first is that it was the job of the priest, not the king, to offer sacrifices. Saul is presuming to take on the role of priest as well as king. He is flagrantly disobeying the command of God. Samuel was the bearer of God's word and Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel, wait for his word. But he takes matters into his own hands. But the key reason, the key matter in Saul's downfall is that he offers reasons, not repentance. He gives excuses for his actions rather than repenting of his actions. I mean, when Samuel asked Saul, what have you done? Instead of giving excuses and blaming the soldiers for scattering and blaming Samuel for being late, he should have taken responsibility and repented. Should have said, oh, He should have said, I've done a foolish thing. I was scared and I failed to trust the Lord. Please forgive me. But he doesn't. He makes excuses. In fact, it reminds me of how children often respond when they're caught doing something wrong. For example, rather than saying, I'm sorry, when they punch their brother in the face, they say, well, he took the toothpaste off me. Now, this may or may not have happened in one of the households of our staff members this week, but I don't want to embarrass her, so I'm not going to tell you that it was Emma. (laughs) She's not here this week, so I can embarrass her. But this is what we do as adults as well, not just when we're children. We pass the buck. We blame others. We make excuses. And I can prove this to you. What's often your response when you get a speeding ticket? Why would the police put a camera there? That's just revenue raising. <laughs> Phil's nodding. Not, not, oh, I did the wrong thing. I was going over the speed limit. Why would the police do that? This is what we do. And we're going to explore this more as we get into the story of Saul. But when he disobeys God, he makes excuses. He gives reasons rather than repenting. And in chapter 14, Saul actually adds stupidity to his disobedience. See, what we see happen is Saul makes a bizarre oath for no apparent reason that prevents his soldiers from eating until the battle against the Philistines is over. And this foolish oath almost costs the life of his son, Jonathan. See, Saul is looking more and more like the kind of king that God, God warned his people about in chapter 8, if you remember that. He's strong, he's handsome, he's impressive, he's even a pretty good military leader, you'll, you'll see in other parts. But he's also stubborn and foolish and proud. And most importantly of all, most seriously of all, he's unwilling to listen to God. And this leads to his rejection that we see in Chapter 15. See, chapter 15 begins with Samuel coming to Saul with a message from God. This is what God says to Saul through Samuel. He says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, if we're honest, these words are shocking to us. I mean, perhaps you're a Christian and and you're thinking, is that really in the Bible? Did God really command that? Maybe you're not a Christian and you think, well, see, this is why I don't believe in the God of the Bible. This seems violent. This seems petty. Maybe you're on the fence when it comes to Christianity and and this kind of thing makes you think twice. I mean, wherever you land, I I think we all wonder, are these the same words of the God, the same God who's described in Psalm 145 as the Lord is good to all? He has compassion on all he has made. Now, the truth is that this is an incredibly complex issue that requires more time than we have this morning to really adequately cover all the issues. But it's in the text, and so we don't want to avoid it or dodge it. And so let me just make a few observations. The first thing we need to understand is we must understand the background to what's going on here. See, the Amalekites, they were descendants of Esau. Remember Esau from Genesis 25, sells his birthright to to Jacob for a bowl of soup? Well, the Amalekites actually settled in a, a region to the south of Israel. You can see them down the bottom here, just below Beersheba. Now, the Amalekites and the Israelites were in constant conflict. And it all began in Exodus 17 when the Israelites were on their way out of the promised land in Egypt, and they're wandering through the wilderness, they're weary and they're tired, and they're attacked by the Amalekites. And it was a pretty dirty attack. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 25, a little bit earlier in the Bible. He says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. This is what the Amalekites would do. They were a barbaric people. They'd come to the rear of your um, caravan and they'd cut down everyone who was slow and weak and infirm and then work their way up. Moses says they had no fear of God. And so God promised after that attack that one day he would wipe out the Amalekites. Now it's now hundreds of years later, God has been patient, And in that time, the Amalekites have continued to attack and to threaten God's people. They were determined to wipe the Israelites out. And so God is determined to stop them. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, is this just a matter of spite? Is this just a matter of revenge? The answer is that by stopping the Amalekites, God is protecting far more than just his people, though he is doing that. God is also protecting his promise to bless the world through his people. See, Israel were God's chosen people, but they were chosen to be God's source, God's conduit of blessing to the entire world. Do you remember what God said to Abraham when he called him the the father of the Israelite nation? He said, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is why one writer says the Amalekites are not simply threatening a people group with their determination to wipe out Israel, but they are a threat to the salvation plan of God for all other nations. Now this background helps us a little bit to understand the story and what's going on. Because on the surface, this looks like an act of genocide. But rather, it's an act of judgement. Tim Chester in his commentary says, to modern ears, this sounds alarmingly like ethnic cleansing. But this is ethical cleansing rather than ethnic cleansing. This is an act of judgement against sin. Destruction will come to the Amalekites, not because they are Amalekites, but because they are sinners. In a sense, this should alarm us. Not because it is unfair, but because it is fair. And because while we are not Amalekites, we are sinners. Their destruction is a picture of what humanity deserves and faces from God. And we have to read this story in light of the entire Bible Because this is a small scale anticipation of God's final judgment. The Bible says in in Second Thessalonians that when Jesus returns, he will punish those who don't do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now I know these are hard truths, and this is a difficult story, but we can't avoid hard truths just because they make us uncomfortable. If you went to the doctor because you were sick, you wouldn't want the doctor to lie to you just because the truth would make you uncomfortable. You would want to know the truth so you know what you need to do and how you can find healing. And the Bible is telling us the truth this morning. It's that God takes our sin and our evil very seriously and his judgment upon it is certain. But the good news of the Bible, the good news of Christianity is that it does not. God does not just diagnose our problem, but he also gives us a solution. See, if the problem is God's coming judgment upon our sin and rebellion, then the solution is God's son, Jesus Christ, freely bearing our judgment upon the cross so that we can stand before God forgiven, loved and accepted. 1 Peter chapter 3, he he writes, For Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's you and I. Why? To bring us to God. In another part of the Bible, we're told Jesus delivers us from the wrath, from the judgment to come. One of my favourite hymns puts it this way. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And so we have to read this story in light of the rest of the Bible. That's how we properly understand it. But as we read this story, we must also properly apply it. You see, this is not precedent or permission for violence against others. One scholar, an Australian scholar, he writes, he says, in these days of much religiously motivated violence, it is very important for us to understand that we are not living in the time of the Old Testament when God's judgment was often brought on individuals and nations by war and other acts of physical violence. We find ourselves living in a time when it is not up to Christian people to repay anyone evil for evil. So far as it depends on us, we are to live peaceably with all, leaving all vengeance to the coming wrath of God. Our warfare now is a spiritual battle for the proclamation of the gospel in which physical violence has no place. We need to properly understand and properly apply this story. Now, before we move on, and we have to move on because we, we're running out of time, Let me just say, I know that this story still leaves us with some legitimate questions. And we can offer some answers, as I've tried to do. There are far more that I could give, but but this is what I've tried to do. But ultimately, we must submit ourselves to God. He is the just judge who judges sinners. And it would be a terrible role reversal if we decided that we could judge the judge. There's a lot more I could say, but we need to move on. And as we move on, we see Saul's response to God's command to completely destroy the Amalekites, to not take anything and to not spare anything. Now, what does Saul do? He doesn't obey God's command. Not completely anyway. He attacks, he defeats the Amalekites. But then we read in verse nine, but Saul and the army spared Agag, that's the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. Now, the reason that Saul spares Agag is because he wants a trophy. In the ancient world, to have a king in your prison was a, a sign of great um, prestige. And so he spares King Agag, he spares the best of the cattle to make himself look good. But he's not obeyed God's commands. Now, the next day, Samuel goes out to meet Saul on the battlefield, but he's told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There, he has set up a monument in his own honour. And so Samuel must be thinking, are you serious? Now, by this point, it's becoming clear what Saul wants. Sparing King Agag, sparing the best of the flocks, building a monument in his own honour, Saul is making a name for himself. And you can see his delusion when Samuel reaches him. And this is how Saul greets Samuel. The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel says, oh really, Saul. And I love this line. He says, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul, Samuel is saying, Saul, if you really did obey God's instructions... What's with the petting zoo? Why are these farm animals wandering around? See, once again, Saul has been caught in disobedience to God. And sadly, once again, he plays the blame game. Look at verse 15. Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle. He puts a bit of a religious twist on it. To sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Who does Saul blame for sparing the animals? The soldiers. Who did it? He did. He's the king. He gave the orders. Saul was responsible. And yet once again, he's shifting the blame and making excuses. Once again, he's giving reasons for his disobedience rather than repenting of it. And this problem, this blame shifting, excuse making is as old as Adam. Literally, in the Genesis 1, in the Garden of Eden, when God confronted Adam about his disobedience, he said to Adam effectively, what have you done? Do you remember what Adam said? The woman that you put here, she gave me the fruit. He not only blames his wife, which is bad, bad thing to do, Adam. Adams can be really dumb sometimes. He blames God for giving him the woman. And this is the story of humanity from that Adam to this Adam. When we're confronted by our sinfulness, by our disobedience, our instinctive response is to blame others or make excuses. I wouldn't lose my temper if my kids were better behaved. It's my wife's fault. She just makes me so angry. Have you met my husband? He's so frustrating. I wouldn't lust if they just dressed a little bit more modestly. My spiritual life would be so much stronger if people at church were more encouraging to me. If the music was livelier and more upbeat. If the sermons were better. It's not my fault for being critical. I just have high standards if you knew what that person did to me, if you knew what had happened in my life, you would understand my bitterness. It's not my fault for gossiping. I don't start the conversations. I'd be more generous if I had more money. On and on we could go. Blame shifting, excuse making, playing the victim. This is what we do. And we're good at it. But this just leaves us worse off and in more bondage than before. When you're confronted with your sinfulness, with your disobedience, you have one of two responses. You can make excuses, you can blame others, you can justify it, or you can own it and you can repent of it. But you cannot do both at the same time. You cannot excuse your sin and own your sin at the same time. You cannot rationalise your sin and repent of your sin at the same time. So let me just ask you, when you're confronted by your anger, your bitterness, your greed, your gossip, your spiritual apathy, your bitterness, whatever else it might be, do you make excuses, shift the blame, play the victim? Or do you own it? And you repent of it. The path of humble repentance is the only path to true freedom and to God. The Bible says if we confess our sins, God is what? Faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We can safely confess and repent to our God. But if we claim we have not sinned, If we shift the blame, if we make excuses, if we justify, if we play the victim, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. When we're confronted by our sinfulness, we can make excuses or we can repent, but we cannot do both. And this is the lesson that we need to learn, that I need to learn. And this is the lesson that Saul needed to learn. And as the story goes on, it seems like he learns his lesson. Look at verses 23 to 24. Samuel says to him, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men and so I gave in to them. And so Saul finally seems to repent. But it's not for real. See, he's only repenting now because Samuel has just told him that the kingship is being taken away from him. And he doesn't want to lose the kingship. He doesn't want to lose his place of prominence before the people. In fact, that's what we see in the second half of verse 24. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. The reason Saul spared King Agag, spared the cattle, is finally revealed. It's because he feared men more than he feared God. It's because he desired the praise of men more than God. Because he craved the acceptance of men more than God, and it led him to disobey God. And this is really important because this is not just Saul's problem, but this is our problem as well. It goes by different names, people pleasing, peer pressure, codependency, but the problem's the same. Fearing people more than God. And this is devastating because when we fear people more than God, we end up obeying people more than we obey God. Let me say that again. When we fear the opinion, the rejection, whatever it is, when we fear people more than God, we end up bowing to people and their demands more than God. In fact, Proverbs 29 verse 25 says this, Fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Now, this proverb became a reality in the life of Saul. His fear of man ended up becoming a snare to him. It trapped him in disobedience to God, which led to his rejection. In fact, this is what we read in verse 22, which is a key verse and takes us to the heart of the story as we land. Samuel said to Saul, he said, Does the Lord delight? in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice. See, what God really wanted from his king was obedience. He didn't want Saul's token sacrifices and half-hearted excuses. He wanted a heart fully surrendered to him. He wanted a king fully obedient to him. And the truth is, this is what God wants from us As well. God doesn't just want us to come to church, sing some songs and go home. He wants, he deserves more than just an hour or two once a week. He wants a heart fully surrendered to him. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What does God ultimately require of us? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind and all your soul. A heart fully surrendered to him. And maybe you're thinking, but Adam, I haven't lived my life fully surrendered to God. In fact, I'm a lot like Saul. I'm a lot more like Saul than I'd like to admit. I make excuses. I've blamed others. I've disobeyed God again and again. Am I too rejected by God like Saul? And this is really where this story should lead us it should leave us crying out for a greater king. For a king whose heart is fully surrendered to God, who is fully obedient to God, who leads us to ultimate victory and true obedience from the heart. And many years later, there was such a king. On the night before he went to the cross, King Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and he too was faced with an impending sacrifice. And it was going to be incredibly tough for him to obey. Because the sacrifice that he faced, it was not just a sacrifice for himself, it was a sacrifice of himself. But this time, despite the great cost, God's king obeys. He says to his father in heaven, not my will, but yours be done. And then like Saul, Jesus in the garden is left all alone. All of Jesus' disciples scatter like Saul's armies. And the enemies are closing in around him. If ever there was a moment to disobey and run, it was this one. But Jesus, God's true king, stays. And he goes to the cross. Not sacrificing for himself, but sacrificing of himself for you and for me. Jesus is the God's true king. And in Jesus, we have a king who humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because Jesus was truly obedient, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the King who will never be rejected. Which means if you are in Jesus, you will never be rejected. And so what's your response to this amazing grace? What's your response to this King? Who has done everything necessary for you. We sang it just a moment ago. Love so amazing, love so dem- divine, demands my all. So what step of obedience is God calling you today in response to what He's done for you? Let's enter a time of prayer and reflect on that question together. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Love so amazing, love so divine, demands our all. So In response to what King Jesus has done for us, the truly obedient King, Lord, we want to go from here and we want to lay down our lives as living sacrifices for you, for your glory, for your kingdom and for our good. Holy Spirit, lead us into all that you have to us. Lead us into increasing obedience. Lead us into deeper joy that is found with King Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. Amen.